The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Catholic Home on member-supported Restoration Radio. I'm your host, Teresa, and on this episode, I'm joined once again by my sister, Margaret. This episode is a members-only episode, and it's not available for individual purchase and download. To receive access to all Restoration Radio episodes, please visit truerestoration.org and go to the member area on the menu bar to find out details on becoming a member. Once again, we have the pleasure of sharing the air with Margaret as we will continue with the topic of G.K. Chesterton. Welcome back, Margaret. Thanks, Teresa. I'm happy to be here. Well, before we continue discussing G.K. Chesterton, for those who haven't tuned into our introductory show, we suggest that you listen to that one first before listening to this one. And for those of you who have, I hope that you've been checking out your bookcases and the internet to find out more about him. So in that first show, we gave a basic overview of his life and works and talked about some of his writings, including his most famous Father Brown stories. Now, he also was a very influential public speaker. So we'll get into that in this episode. So, Margaret, wasn't Chesterton also a great debater? Yes, Chesterton was an absolutely remarkable debater, which perhaps a lot of people might not know. He was very well loved and respected by his rival contemporaries, Due to his kindness and amiability, the two people that Chesterton constantly debated with most were George Bernard Shaw and H.G. Wells. These two represented rising modernism and all the progressive and socialist teachings of the time. But even his greatest debating rivalries respected him. One of his famous debates was while Chesterton was in New York against a great trial lawyer, Clarence Darrow, which dealt with creation and the book of Genesis. The debate topic was called, Will the World Return to Religion? Darrow being the defender of science. But it turned out that he obviously knew much less about science than Chesterton. Chesterton won by a long shot with 2,359 votes to Darrow's 1,022 votes. This was one of the most famous of his debates. Unfortunately, there was no known transcript at the proceedings but I'd like to read some passages from clipping reports to give listeners a feel for this famous debate. Is that okay? Oh, yeah, go for it. That'd be great. Okay, so the following is a passage from Chesterton as seen by his contemporaries, compiled by a Cyril Clemens, and this was um, taken from the International Mark Twain Society. This is found on the Chesterton.org website. So I'm quoting here. Mr. Joseph J. Riley attended a debate at Mecca Temple in New York City between Chesterton and Clarence Darrow, which dealt with the story of creation as presented in Genesis. It was a Sunday afternoon and the temple was packed. At the conclusion of the debate, everybody was asked to express his opinion as to the victor and slips of paper were passed around for that purpose. The award went directly to Chesterton. 
Darrow, in comparison, seemed heavy, uninspired, slow of mind, while G.K.C. was joyous, sparkling, and witty, quite the Chesterton one had come to expect from his books. The affair was like a race between a lumbering sailing vessel and a modern steamer. Mrs. Frances Taylor Patterson also heard the Chesterton-Darrow debate, but went to the meeting with some misgivings because she was a trifle afraid that Chesterton's, quote, gifts might seem somewhat literary in comparison with the trained scientific mind and rapier tongue of the famous trial lawyer. Instead, the trained scientific mind, the clear thinking, the lightning quickness in getting a point and hurling back an answer turned out to belong to Chesterton. I have never heard Mr. Darrow alone, but taken relatively, relatively, when that relativity is to Chesterton, he appears positively muddle-headed, unquote. This is still continuing this report. Although the terms of the debate were determined at the outset, Darrow either could not or would not stick to the definitions, but kept going off at illogical tangents and becoming choleric over points that were not in dispute. He seemed to have an idea that all religion was a matter of accepting Jonah's whale as a sort of luxury liner. As Chesterton summed it up, he felt as if Darrow had been arguing all afternoon with his fundamentalist aunt, and the latter kept sparring with the dummy of his own mental making. When something went wrong with the microphone, Darrow sat back until it could be fixed, whereupon GKC jumped up and carried on in his natural voice, science, you see, is not infallible. Whatever brilliance Darrow had in his own right, it was completely eclipsed. For all the luster that he shed, he might have been a remote star at high noon, drowned by the bright incandescent light of the sun. Chesterton had the audience with him from the start, and when it was over, everyone just sat there, not wishing to leave. They were loath to let the light die. And I just want to add, I just want to add one thing that his opponent said later on. Clarence Darrow wrote the author shortly before his death, and he said, I was favorably impressed by, warmly attached to G.K. Chesterton. I enjoyed my debates with him and found him a man of culture and fine sensibilities. If he and I had lived where we could have been better acquainted, eventually we would have ceased to debate, I firmly believe, unquote. So now the following is taken from the February 4th, 1931 issue of The Nation. Here, Henry Hazlitt gives his impressions of the debate. Quote, in the ballot that followed, the audience voted more than two to one for the defender of the faith, Mr. Chesterton, of course, and if the vote was on the relative merits of the two debaters and not on the question itself, it was surely a very just one. Mr. Chesterton's argument was like Mr. Chesterton, amiable, courteous, jolly. It was always clever, it was full of nice turns of expression, and altogether a very adroit exhibition by one of the world's ablest intellectual fencing masters and one of its most charming gentlemen. Mr. Darrow's personality, by contrast, seemed rather colorless and certainly very dour. His attitude seemed almost surly. He slurred his words. The rise and fall of his voice was sometimes heavily melodramatic, and his argument was conducted on an amazingly low intellectual level. 
ostensibly the defender of science against Mr. Chesterton, he obviously knew much less about science than Mr. Chesterton did. When he essayed to answer his opponent on the views of Eddington and Jeans, it was patent that he did not have the remotest conception of what the new physics was all about. His victory over Mr. Bryan at Dayton had been too cheap and easy. He remembered it not wisely, but too well. His arguments are still the arguments of the village atheist of the Ingersoll period. At Mecca Temple, he still seemed to be trying to shock and convince yokels. Mr. Chesterton's deportment was irreproachable, but I am sure that he was secretly unhappy. He had been on the platform many times against George Bernard Shaw. This opponent could not extend his powers. He was not getting his exercise. Very interesting and very cleverly written as well. And wouldn't it have been wonderful and extremely entertaining to see him debating live? Absolutely. I would have loved that. Yeah. I doubt there are any lay people alive today who could come anywhere close to being as brilliant at debating as Chesterton. Debating is somewhat of a lost art now, as most people aren't even interested in having to think, but just sort of want to be amused and entertained to death in front of a screen or something. So... Moving back to his Father Brown series now, thanks for all those interesting quotes about his debate, but I think we should move back onto this, um, which we discussed in our initial show. Haven't there been many movies and TV shows made over the years about Father Brown as well? Yes, there were actually a few old films made back in the 1930s. Then in 1954, there was a film featuring the actor Alec Guinness, who I love, who played Father Brown, and that movie was just great. I, I just I saw that recently, and you can actually find that on YouTube, by the way. But um, interestingly enough, there was an incident during the filming that started Alec Guinness's own conversion to the Catholic faith. So the film was shot in a remote French village, and one night, while Alec Guinness was still in costume as a priest and on his way back to his lodging, this little boy grabbed his hand and trustingly accompanied him, thinking he was a real priest. This incident so affected Alec Guinness that he commented about this incident saying, this is later, quote, continuing my walk, I reflected that a church that could inspire such confidence in a child, making priests, even when unknown, so easily approachable, could not be as scheming or as creepy as so often made out. I began to shake off my long-taught, long-absorbed long prejudices, unquote. Alec Guinness went on to convert and enter the Catholic Church a few years later. So we can truly say that the fictional Father Brown led Alec Guinness to the Catholic Church. <laughs> but unfortunately, those days are gone when all priests were considered so approachable and inspired confidence and trust, thanks to the nervous order of priest scandals, which has destroyed that credibility and, you know, that trustworthiness in the priesthood. Yes, I mean, not even priests, but still, it's another horrific indictment on what most people think is the Catholic Church. I mean, those faithless modernists have an awful lot to answer for. So mm. anyway, please continue, Margaret, with this. Okay, so then there was this mediocre TV series in 1974 with the English actor Kenneth Moore, and each show adapted the storyline from one of the one of Chesterton's short stories. Um, I would say it was okay from what I remember. And then now there's this newer BBC series of Father Brown that they say are adaptations and have used original stories, but... You know, they're just far from representing the true Father Brown. They just, I, I can't recommend it. 
The British actor as Father Brown is just dreadful, just a revolting portrayal of the lovable Father Brown character that Chesterton created. So I just don't recommend it one bit. The Father Brown in that series is far from lovable. Anyway, it's very modern, and some of the storylines are extremely problematic, to say the least. It just, um, the reason is I say this is because it, I think it just completely misportrays the duties of a priest. I happened to catch the end of one of these shows, and I, this is what I saw. I saw Father Brown giving some kind of wishy-washy absolution over the water where a criminal had just jumped in and was swimming away. But I saw them talking a little bit before that, and there was no confession. He hadn't repented. It just, you know, was off, off he went, and there's Father Brown giving this this absolution over the water, just this vague thing. And it just completely makes a mockery of the sacrament of confession, just to name one problem. So in typical modernist style, it ruins the genius of Chesterton, who always, always had Father Brown seeking repentance first, then absolving. The other annoying thing about the show is that it's supposed to be set in the 1950s, yet this type of bogus absolution would have never happened. So it's completely out of context historically to make viewers think that this type of thing would have occurred back then. So there were just a lot of theological inaccuracies. Yeah, unfortunately, those are very common problems with mainstream movies and TV. And sadly, the unthinking masses come out at the end of watching these supposedly historically correct shows thinking wrongly that they've actually learned something. Anyway, back to Chesterton, it's actually a very clever skill to be able to preach concepts of the faith in a riveting fiction detective series that non-Catholics will read and enjoy, perhaps without them even knowing that they are being indoctrinated and educated in the one true religion along the way. So what special significance do you think he plays in our times, and specifically for this particular Restoration Radio series, in relation to Catholic homes and families? Okay, good question. Well, I think G.K. Chesterton plays an extremely important role in our Catholic homes and families today as he was quite prophetic and saw where all these errors of modern times were heading, especially with regard to the family. His writings are an education in themselves. Unfortunately, he's no longer taught in schools, but he should be because he truly makes you think so all the more why he should be in every Catholic home and more importantly, put in every English-speaking homeschooling course and classroom. I truly believe that. Chesterton was a visionary. He argued eloquently against all the evil trends that were taking root at the beginning of the 20th century and which unfortunately are now prevalent and just ripe in our society today. He attacked materialism, moral relativism, and agnosticism, eugenics, and feminism. And in politics, he argued against both socialism and capitalism, showing why both are enemies to freedom and justice. He was a big proponent of distributism, which we mentioned earlier, but this is a whole other topic altogether, and I don't think we have time to go into it right now. Um, he is particularly relevant today because of his defense of the family, which is just completely under assault today. I'd like to recommend a book titled Brave New Family, and this was put out by Ignatius Press in 1990. It's a collection of his essays, a collection of his essays on men and women, children, divorce, and the sacredness of marriage and the family. So I'll bring up some of his quotes from this book. 
1908, G.K. Chesterton noticed an increase in divorce. In a newspaper column, he observed that Americans were passing laws to make divorce easier where couples were allowed to get a divorce for incompatibility of temper. He said that if Americans could be divorced for incompatibility of temper, he could not understand why they were not all divorced. He warned that a marriage would be called a failure just because it was a struggle. By the way, I might add that the origin of the word compatible stems from the Latin compati, meaning suffer with. <laughs> that goes to show my husband and I are very compatible. <laughs> I knew you were very compatible. I always said that. Yes. Um, so next, another quote regarding divorce. Quote, just because a man bumps into something, he considers it an obstacle and he tries to get rid of it, even if the obstacle is the pillar that is holding up the roof of his house. Unquote. That's from his essay, The Superstition of Divorce. And here's one of his paradox quotes. Quote, people do not know what they are doing because they do not know what they are undoing, unquote. This quote's taken from a chapter, Why I, I Am a Catholic, in his book, The Thing. So now, here are some quotes regarding Catholic rules of marriage, doctrine, and discipline. He said, quote, Catholic doctrine and discipline may be walls, but they are the walls of a playground. And that's taken from his book, Orthodoxy. And on the issue of keeping a truly Catholic home, and this might be one of his most famous quotes, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried, unquote. This might be the opportune time to explain what G.K. Chesterton said about specialists versus amateurs, which I mentioned in our earlier show. In Chesterton's wonderful book, What's Wrong with the World, written in 1910, he writes this famous quote, If a thing is worth doing, it is worth doing badly. What Chesterton was doing was defending the amateur against the professional or the generalist against the specialist, especially when it came to things worth doing. For instance, with regard to the rearing of the young, that is the education of the very young, this is a job not for the specialist, but for the generalist and amateur. In other words, this job is for the mother, who Chesterton says is broad, whereas men are narrow. Chesterton foresaw daycare and the working mother and that children would end up being raised by so-called professionals rather than amateurs. An amateur in its literal meaning is someone who does something out of love and not for money. He said that we have left things worth doing, such as the raising of children, to others on the poor and erroneous excuse that others might be able to do a better job. Well, unfortunately, it has become the norm for most children to be raised by the state starting in daycare centres, so he was very across what was the future held. Yes, well, I'll now quote some longer passages from various essays that are found in that book I mentioned before called Brave New Family. Okay, so these are longer passages, pa these are long passages, but this will sort of give our listeners a better idea of his writing style. Okay, so here's an excerpt from his essay titled on certain modern writers and the institution of the family. Okay, I'll start the long quote. 
Now, exactly as this principle applies to the empire, to the nation within the empire, to the city within the nation, to the street within the city, so it applies to the home within the street. The institution of the family is to be commended for precisely the same reasons that the institution of the nation or the institution of the city are in this matter to be commended. It is a good thing for a man to live in a family for the same reason that it is a good thing for a man to be besieged in a city. It is a good thing for a man to live in a family in the same sense that it is a beautiful and delightful thing for a man to be snowed up in a street. They all force him to realize that life is not a thing from outside, but a thing from inside. Above all, they all insist upon the fact that life, if it be a truly stimulating and fascinating life, is a thing which, of its nature, exists in spite of ourselves. The modern writers who have suggested, in a more or less open manner, that the family is a bad institution, have generally confined themselves to suggesting with much sharpness, bitterness, or pathos that perhaps the family is not always very congenial. Of course, the family is a good institution because it is uncongenial. It is wholesome precisely because it contains so many divergencies and varieties. It is, as the sentimentalists say, like a little kingdom and like most other little kingdoms, is generally in a state of something resembling anarchy. <laughs> it, is, it is exactly because our brother George is not interested in our religious difficulties, but is interested in the Trocadero restaurant, that the family has some of the bracing qualities of the Commonwealth. And it continues, It is precisely because our Uncle Henry does not approve of the theatrical ambitions of our sister Sarah, that the family is like humanity. The men and women who, for good reasons and bad, revolt against the family are, for good reasons and bad, simply revolting against mankind. Aunt Elizabeth is unreasonable, like mankind. Papa is excitable, like mankind. Our youngest brother is mischievous, like mankind. Grandpa Grandpapa is stupid, like the world. He is old, like the world. Those who wish, rightly or wrongly, to step out of all this do definitely wish to step into a narrower world. They are dismayed and terrified by the largeness and variety of the family. Sarah wishes to find a world wholly consisting of private theatricals. George wishes to think the Trocadero a cosmos. I do not say for a moment that the flight to this narrower life may not be the right thing for the individual any more than I say the same thing about flight into a monastery. But I do say that anything is bad and artificial which tends to make these people succumb to the strange delusion that they are stepping into a world which is actually larger and more varied than their own. The best way that a man could test his readiness to encounter the common variety of mankind would be to climb down a chimney into any house at random and get on as well as possible with the people inside. And that is essentially what each one of us did on the day that he was born. 
This is indeed the sublime and special romance of the family. It is romantic because it is a toss-up. It is romantic because it is everything that its enemies call it. It is romantic because it is arbitrary. It is romantic because it is there. So long as you have groups of men chosen rationally, you have some special or sectarian atmosphere. It is when you have groups of men chosen irrationally that you have men. The element of adventure begins to exist. For an adventure is, by its nature, a thing that comes to us. It is a thing that chooses us, not a thing that we choose. And he goes on. Falling in love has been often regarded as the supreme adventure, the supreme romantic accident. Insomuch as there is in it something outside ourselves, something of a sort of merry fatalism, this is very true. Love does take us and transfigure and torture us. It does break our hearts with an unbearable beauty like the unbearable beauty of music. But insofar as we have certainly something to do with the matter, insofar as we are in some sense prepared to fall in love with, in some sense jump into it, insofar as we do to some extent choose and to some extent even judge, in all, this falling in love is not truly romantic, is not truly adventurous at all. In this degree... The supreme adventure is not falling in love. The supreme adventure is being born. There do we walk suddenly into a splendid and startling trap. There do we see something of which we have not dreamed before. Our father and mother do lie in wait for us and leap out on us like brigands from a bush. Our uncle is a surprise. Our aunt is, in the beautiful common expression, a bolt from the blue. When we step into the family by the act of being born, we do step into a world which is incalculable, into a world which has its own strange laws, into a world which could do without us, into a world that we have not made. In other words, when we step into the family, we step into a fairy tale, unquote. Goodness, he must have known my family. <laughs> now, actually, that's a just a magnificent explanation of the family. It's just no one else has written anything like that as far as I know. So mm-hmm. we'd like to remind you at this point that you're listening to The Catholic Home on member-supported Restoration Radio. I'm your host, Teresa, and I'm joined by Margaret. And today we've been expanding on a discussion of the Catholic author, poet, and public speaker by the name of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. And we just had a very long quote from him that was very worthwhile. We want to remind you that The Catholic Home is a production of member-supported Restoration Radio. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. Permission can usually be very easily obtained by writing to mail at truerestoration.org. So continuing on the theme of Chesterton's writings, in relation to the family and home, what else is worth sharing, Margaret? Okay, well, how about this one? This is also from Brave New Family. Quote, But of all the modern notions generated by mere wealth, the worst is this, the notion that domesticity is dull and tame. Inside the home, they say, is dead decorum and routine. Outside is adventure and variety. This is indeed a rich man's opinion. The rich man knows that his own house moves on vast and soundless wheels of wealth. 
is run by regiments of servants, by a swift and silent ritual. On the other hand, every sort of vagabondage or romance is open to him in the streets outside. He has plenty of money and can afford to be a tramp. His wildest adventure will end in a restaurant, while the yokel's tamest adventure may end in a police court. <laughs> If he smashes a window, he can pay for it. If he smashes a man, he can pension him. He can, like the millionaire in the story, buy a hotel and get a glass of gin. And because he, the, luxur the luxurious man, dictates the tone of nearly all quote-unquote advanced and progressive thought, we have almost forgotten what a home really means to the overwhelming millions of mankind. For the truth is that to the moderately poor, the home is the only place of liberty. Nay, it is the only place of anarchy. It is the only spot on the earth where a man can alter arrangements suddenly, make an experiment or indulge on a whim, sorry, indulge in a whim. Everywhere else he goes, he must accept the strict rules of the shop, inn, club, or museum that he happens to enter. He can eat his meals on the floor in his own house if he likes. I often do it myself. It gives a curious, childish, poetic picnic feeling. There would be considerable trouble if I tried to do it in the ABC tea shop, unquote. <laughs> you just have to wonder how on earth he comes up with such colorful ideas. Oh, it's quite, quite the mind. Um, so next, here's an excerpt from his essay called The Glory of Home and Family. This one won't be quite as long, I hope. Uh, so, so here we go. I have never understood myself how this superstition arose, the notion that a woman plays a lowly part in the home and a loftier part outside the home. There may be all sorts of excellent reasons for individuals doing or not doing either, but I cannot understand how the domestic thing can be considered inferior in the nature of the thing done. Most work done in the outer world is pretty mechanical work. Some of it is decidedly dirty work. There seems no possible sense in which it is intrinsically superior to domestic work. Nine times out of ten, the only difference is that the one person is drudging for people she does care for and the other drudging for people she does not care for. But allowing for the element of drudgery in both cases, there is rather more element of distinction and even dictatorship in the domestic case. The most fully trusted official must very largely go by the rules and regulations established by superiors. The mother of a family makes her own rules and regulations, and they are not merely mechanical rules, but often very fundamental moral ones, nor are they merely monotonous in their application." Unquote. Well, I totally agree with that, so he won't get any arguments from me. 100% spot on. Now, you've given a pretty good sampling of his writings in defense of the traditional family unit, so thank you for that. And hopefully they're sufficient to get our listeners wanting to check him out further and to see what else he had to say about this important topic. Now, G.K. Chesterton also wrote some amazing poetry. Even for those not really into poetry, you will surely find his poems worthwhile. So would you please give a brief overview of his poetry and provide some samples? Ah, yes, Chesterton the Poet. His very first book, 
was actually nonsense poetry. He is also famous for his comic drinking and traveling songs. His poetry is as varied as his prose, some nonsensical and humorous, but he also wrote serious epic masterpieces and even some dark poetry, especially the one I'm thinking of is his poem called A Prayer in Darkness, which was written about two years after the death of his brother Cecil. I believe Chesterton was still grieving his younger brother's death when he wrote that poem, but this prayer of darkness, there still was this glimmer of hope in his writing. And did you know that he wrote a poem called The Ballad of St. Barbara? No, I did know that. That's very interesting. However, what I will mention, seeing you mentioned comic drinking songs, is that I am very familiar with his song called Wine and Water because my husband performed rather spectacularly this song whilst playing the piano at a Chesterton party we once held here. It was actually hilarious. In fact, it was one of the best parties I ever recall partaking in and I will dob in some of our other Aussie Restoration Radio show hosts now and mention at this point that Phil Stone was also present and he thunderously stole the show as the best Chesterton lookalike. He came in with the wig just like his, the hat, the cape, sword stick, and being well over six feet tall, he just had it all under control. Whereas we also had Matthew and he did a memorable recital of Ode to Stilton, that poem, whilst balancing a chunk of Stilton cheese all the way from Stilton, England on a marble platter. And even Dan gave the Chesterton sentence match game a pretty good shot. So we're all pretty much into Chesterton over this in this neck of the woods. Oh, gosh. I wish I could have been there to see that spectacle, <laughs> um, especially Damien's spectacle. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's great that his poems are being recited in your home. And actually, it seems his books and essays have gone through quite the revival recently, but Few seem to be aware of his outstanding poetry contributions, so that's good to know that there's, you know, he's, it's, it's well and alive in Australia. That's great. Indeed. So I'll just continue on about his, um, some of his works. So there's two standout works, you know, regarding his poetry that I feel that need to be mentioned here. The first one is his poem, Lepanto. I'd like to quote from an article by Michael Litchens, who is the book editor of the Sophia Institute Press. So he writes, quote, Lepanto was his great poem written in 1911 and first published during the war. It would serve as an inspiration to the men in the trenches who saw some parallels with Don John of Austria's great sea battle and a struggle of the Allies on land, sea and air. The Ballad of Chesterton's Lepanto is a rollicking and rousing tale of martial exploits and bravery that sets the pace of a grand adventure, unquote. Oh, that's a very good description of Lepanto. Now, on to his other ballad. Would you mind reciting The Ballad of the White Horse from Memory? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, I hope our, our listeners are sitting down for this one. Okay, so here we go. Um, hold on to your hats. Uh, the Ballad of the White Horse by G.K. Chesterton. Before the gods that made the gods had seen their sunrise pass. Okay, I'm just kidding. I'm not going <laughs> to. Uh, just so in case some listeners don't realise, that particular ballad is a length of an entire book. Yes, we don't need to put our listeners through a whole book of rhyming verse, Margaret. So can you... <laughs> like, what, like 132 pages worth. Yes, back to the program. Okay. So, yes, Chesterton might have considered this epic poem to be his greatest literary work as it was the only one of his works that he felt worthwhile enough to dedicate to Francis, his wife. Dale Alquist, who we mentioned earlier, the 
president of the G.K. Cheston Society, summarizes that it's a story of the English King Alfred who fought the Danes in 878. But it is also the story of Christianity battling against the destructive forces of nihilism and heathenism, which is the battle we are still fighting. Michael Litchin writes, Chesterton wrote one of the last great English epics about King Alfred the Great and his struggle against the Danes. The Ballad of the White Horse is a poem on the grandest scale, covering the defeat of Alfred before he bands together the chieftains to fight the great victory over the Danes at the Battle of Ethendon. The brilliance and impact of this poem, originally published in 1911, cannot be overstated. It had a profound impact on a young J.R.R. Tolkien, though he would reconsider it later in life. The ballad was carried by many soldiers in the First World War, and Chesterton received letters of gratitude from widows and wives for writing it. Likewise, during the Second World War, when the Times wrote of the Allies' defeat at the Battle of Crete, the article ended with the words of the Virgin Mary to King Alfred, I tell you not for your comfort, yea, not for your desire, save that the sky grows darker yet, and the sea rises higher. Night shall be thrice night over you, and heaven an iron cope. Do you have joy without a cause, yea, faith without a hope? Yeah, I really like that epic poem, and I especially love that part you just quoted, so good selection there. And it seems very applicable to our times in this battle we are waging against the forces of Antichrist. Now, there's another much shorter and likewise terrific poem that gets an annual airing in many Catholic circles. Some of us, some of our listeners will probably know what I'm talking about here. So tell us about that one, Margaret. Well, my friends know that my favorite poem is called The Donkey, a poem about the ridiculed beast of burden who had the, the privilege of carrying the King of Kings on his back on the first Palm Sunday. So every Palm Sunday, it's my tradition to gather as many friends, or should I say victims, <laughs> that <laughs> I possibly can, and I just subject them to my recital of this poem. So just a little bit more penance for them, you know, just before the end of Lent. <laughs> so anyway, should I recite it now? Indeed, and for anyone not into poetry who wishes they had put in more of an effort during Lent, this could be considered belated penance. <laughs> okay, well, thanks very much. Okay, so here it is. The Donkey by G.K. Chesterton. When fishes flew and forests walked and figs grew upon thorn, some moment when the moon was blood, then surely I was born. With monstrous head and sickening cry and ears like errant wings, the devil's walking parody on all four-footed things, the tattered outlaw of the earth of ancient crooked will, Starve, scourge, deride me. I am dumb. I keep my secret still. Fools, for I also had my hour, one far fierce hour and sweet. There was a shout about my ears and palms before my feet. Oh, that one gives me the chills. It's a classic poem. I think we should now, it's hard to um, improve on that one, but I think we should give just one more brief sample of his poetry because they really are so brilliant. And so how about a broad-minded bishop rebukes the verminous St. Francis? <laughs> okay, oh yes. The title's just about as long as the actual poem. Okay, so here we go. You asked for it. 
if Brother Francis pardoned Brother Flea, there still seems need of such strange charity, seeing he is, for all his gay goodwill, bitten by funny little creatures still. <laughs> <laughs> so clever. Okay, so finally, I'll just give you a couple quotes on Chesterton on poetry. So these are what he's, his, what his um, take on poetry. He said, the poet only asks to get his head into the heavens. It is the logician who seeks to get the heavens into his head. And it is his head that splits. And another quote, this one's very profound. The poets have been mysteriously silent on the subject of cheese. Hmm, cheese. <laughs> A very important subject and very mysterious indeed. <laughs> <laughs> it shows how silly he is. Oh, yes. Well, of course, he contradicts himself, actually, because given his ode to Stilton, which Matthew recited at that party, Cheston himself is one poet who has not been silent on the subject. Oh. Uh, you think about it. So GKC is also famous for his seemingly limitless ability to come up with extremely clever and amusing witticisms and pithy quotes. So we'll move off from the poems into these. And he truly deserves to be considered the king of epigram. So would you please share some of your favorites? Absolutely. This is the part I was looking forward to doing. Um, he was called the king of epigram and also the prince of paradox, as I mentioned in our introductory show. Time magazine said, quote, that whenever possible, Chesterton made his points with popular sayings, proverbs, allegories, first carefully turning them inside out, unquote. So he was extremely witty, clever, and always makes you laugh. So here are just a few of his famous quotes. So I'll just rattle them off. If there were no God, there would be no atheists. Next. The Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies, probably because they are generally the same people. That's <laughs> <laughs> so true. The only defensible war is a war of defense. A dead thing can go with the stream, but only a living thing can go against it. Very relevant to our times, hey? Yeah. Some of these you actually have to meditate on in a way. Mm. Next one. An adventure is only an inconvenience rightly considered. An inconvenience is only an adventure wrongly considered. Okay, so this one's a little longer. It has been often said, very truly, that religion is the thing that makes the ordinary man feel extraordinary. It is an equally important truth that religion is the thing that makes the extraordinary man feel ordinary. Men do not differ much about what things they will call evils. They differ enormously about what evils they will call excusable. Ain't that the truth? <laughs> <laughs> to say that moderns are half educated may be too complimentary by half. <laughs> <laughs> Where is he now? We need this wit today. Okay. okay, this one's good. Don't be so open minded that your brains fall out. <laughs> <laughs> These are brilliant. This one is good. Angels can fly because they take themselves lightly. Devils fall because of their gravity. And now the best for last, this is a quote against the feminist movement. 
10,000 women marched through the streets shouting, we will not be dictated to, and went off and became stenographers. (laughs) I love that last one. Actually, they're all brilliant. Uh, Now, unfortunately, I know that quite a few people who haven't been raised like we were on G.K. Chesterton or simply are not properly familiarised with his works can tend to find him a bit daunting or even think that he should be kept locked up in a pipe-smoking men's club along with stuffy academics who aren't in the real world alongside real down-to-earth people like us. So what can you share with us today to help such listeners break out of this mindset and start the journey of discovery if they haven't done so as a result of our previous show or things you've already said? Okay, well, well, first of all, I think that people need to be patient with him. So in this world, we, you know, we're in such a hurry for the bottom line. We, you know, we need to be instantly gratified. Um, but I think people need to read Chesterton slowly and sometimes, you know, read one book. You might have to read it again and just really let his ideas sink in. He may seem frustrating at times as the reader may not know exactly where Chesterton is going with all his twists and turns. And sometimes he does seem to go on and on and you're not quite sure where he's going. Some people find him hard to read because following his train of thought is like learning a new language. So I I highly recommend perseverance. That's the first thing. But he will always surprise you at the end with his remarkable conclusions. He writes in a way where you always have these eureka moments as he expresses your very own views and ways of thinking and he expresses it in a way that we never could so but he also helps us see truths we didn't see before so that's what i mean by those eureka moments so um okay where to begin on this adventure if you want to embark on reading chesterton so this is the problem right now we have you know he's so prolific there's just a vast amount of his works everywhere like where do you begin so rather than invent the wheel Dale Alquist the co-founder and president of the American Chesterton Society he recommends starting off with a reading plan and he's broken down Chesterton's works into different categories and I just love this reading plan it just breaks it down and makes it all very simple for us so he goes through key categories including in an introduction to Chesterton apologetics fiction essays, literary criticism and biographies, social criticism, poetry, and other topics, of course. So if you've never picked up a book on Chesterton, perhaps starting off with some of Dale Alquist's introductory books would be a good way to begin. Uh, There's one book called The Complete Thinker, The Marvelous Mind of G.K. Chesterton, in which Alquist compiles hundreds of references from the vast array of Chesterton's writings. And he really describes Chesterton well. I just, I love the way he describes him. So um, if you go to their website, the product description says, his ideas are not only connected to each other, they are also connected to us, showing that thought of Chesterton is timeless. Chesterton connects us to the bigger picture by helping us see how the many and varied elements within our experience fit together. He sheds light on almost every subject and opens doors from one thing to another with dazzling clarity. That, that's actually taken from the product description on the website about Dale Alquist's book. Okay, so next is the category of biographies. 
So if this is your greatest interest, then I would suggest starting off by reading his books on St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Francis. And his book on St. Thomas, by the way, has been acclaimed as the best book ever written on St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, the next category, if you are mostly interested in apologetic, that that's like where that's your big subject, then you could just get right to Chesterton's hard-hitting books, Orthodoxy and The Everlasting Man. Uh, the two of these need to be slowly digested, and the good thing about these books is that each chapter is essentially its own separate essay. But of course, Chesterton manages to tie them all together into one great, incredible book. Dale Alquist says that, quote, Orthodoxy is the trunk of the tree which all the other branches of Chesterton grow. It is a masterpiece of rhetoric. It has never been out of print since it was first published in 1908, and it is simply one of the best books written in the 20th century, unquote. He also says that if you only read one book by Chesterton, it has to be orthodoxy. This is Del Alquist's opinion. My opinion is actually St. Thomas Aquinas, but anyway. Chesterton explains why it is so important to get doctrine exactly right and why even a slight divergence from the truth has to be fiercely opposed. Um, so I would suggest that a good way to work your way towards these two you know, monumental works could be to get a book of a collection of his essays. There is one collection on the Chesterton.org website called In Defense of Sanity, the best essays of G.K. Chesterton, which has a variety of topics to choose from. So it's just, um, this could be a good way to start. All righty. So moving to the next category, if you're more into fiction, you can start by reading one of these. You can start with either the Father Brown series, The Man Who Was Thursday, The Ball and the Cross, or Man Alive. And um, to make this easier, we can attach the link to this reading plan for listeners if they just want this, you know, this breakdown of categories, and they can then begin their discovery of this literary genius. Oh, good idea. Thanks for that, Margaret. I'll do that. I'll make a note to include that link on our webpage. So Dale Alquist, as you mentioned, the president of the American Chesterton Society, also has made a series of TV shows. So would you tell us about them? Uh, yes, so I started watching The Apostle of Common Sense shortly after the first season aired in 2000. And it was really one of the very few shows that a traditional Catholic can watch on EWTN without being, you know, too repulsed. Uh, so <laughs> Del Aqua's show is a great, easy, entertaining way to be introduced to the brilliance of Chesterton, and he just explains it wonderfully. Mr. Alquist actually converted from being a Baptist to being a Catholic because of reading Chesterton. Um, I think the story goes that he was on his honeymoon and um, he brings a Chesterton book to his, on his honeymoon and it was actually after that that he converted. But anyway, so Mr. Alquist, he converted within the Novus Ordo establishment, but I, I believe he actually converted to the orthodoxy of the Catholic faith and it's the faith that actually Chesterton defended and, and, and wrote about. So the only caveat I would add is that there are a few quotes by modern anti-popes in this show, The Apostle of Common Sense, but it's mostly in the last few series, I think the last two series. And he does mix in, you know, Vatican II into some of the later series. But overall, Del Alquist, you know, he's done a really wonderful thing reintroducing Chesterton back into the world by his TV series. 
And he's also reprinted his books that have been out of print for decades. So, you know what? I just highly recommend the DVD series, but especially the first two seasons of The Apostle of Common Sense. Yeah, indeed. They are a lot of fun and educational. And my husband, Damien, and I thoroughly enjoyed them. As we close out this episode, we have provided a little bit more information to build upon the introduction, which we presented in our first show, to get our listeners enthused about exploring the wonderful world of GKC. And I want to thank you, Margaret, for your time and being with us on this episode once again. Is there anything else you would like to add in summary before we close out our episode? Yes. Uh, well, one last thing I'd like to add is that I think it's ironic that although Chesterton was so well known in his day and also clearly emerged as the winner of his debating contest, the world has largely forgotten him. And so we're now living in the horrible legacies of our modern world, you know, socialism, relativism, materialism, and all the other errors and abominations that Chesterton so eloquently fought against. As Chesterton said, words are deeds. Chesterton's walking stick, which I talked about in the first show, um, which he walked about with, it concealed a sword, which I think is symbolic of him fighting and defending the crumbling culture around him, defending the one true Catholic faith, defending the family, you know, just standing up for all that is beautiful and true and just defending common sense. His weapon truly was his pen, and I would say that his words were truly magnificent deeds. So that's how I like to end off. Great thoughts there to leave with our listeners today. Well, once again, Margaret, thank you for your time. God bless you. If you have any questions for Margaret or feedback on this episode, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us at catholichome at truerestoration.org and we will pass along your questions or comments to Margaret. And we encourage our listeners to comment or ask questions on the Restoration Radio section of our online forum. We'd also take this moment to remind you all remind you that all correspondence with us is strictly confidential. All of us here at member-supported Restoration Radio hope that you found this show to be informative, helpful and beneficial to you and to your faith. In return, please think of offering a Mass, a Rosary or even a simple Ave for our work the next time you pray. For the Restoration, I am Teresa. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.